Most of us have no clue how to pray. This is on full display in numerous movies. Uh, my family just watched one. Maybe your family did as well. Christmas Vacation. There's a scene where they're around the dinner table and Clark asks Aunt Bethany to pray. And Aunt Bethany proceeds to recite the Pledge of Allegiance <laughs> to, to everyone's horror. But by the end, everyone's standing with their hands over their hearts and, and you're kind of laughing along with it. Another uh, favorite movie scene where prayer kind of goes awry is Meet the Parents, Robert De Niro and Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller plays a character named Greg that is engaged to Robert De Niro's daughter. And Robert De Niro is kind of testing him at the dinner table and ask him to pray. He's got a Jewish background, so he doesn't have, uh, he doesn't really understand the, the, how to pray like the Christian context, but he gives it a go anyway. And he parcels together little bits of prayer he may have heard through the year, and he ends with, uh, oh dear Lord, three things we pray, to uh, love you more dearly, to see you more clearly, to follow you more nearly, day by day by day, amen. And, and we chuckle along with that. And another, probably my last and most favorite maybe is Talladega Nights, not maybe a wonderful movie, but Will Ferrell is praying at the dinner table with his family and proceeds to pray passionately, but throughout he's praying consistently to baby Jesus. And his wife is just really annoyed with him. He, he tells her that he just prefers praying to the baby Jesus. And, uh, and we laugh. And we laugh, I think, because we can relate to it because most of us have no clue how to pray. When our 10-year-old daughter Jubilee was four, she went through a stretch where she insisted on praying over every dinner meal. And so she would dutifully uh, fold her, her hands like this, but keep her eyes wide open. And she would literally, literally pray for everything uh, she saw. So she'd say, uh, thank you, Jesus, for the plate. Thank you for the fork. Thank you for the chicken. Thank you for the potatoes. Thank you for the peas. And when she pray for vegetables, she's kind of wrinkle her nose like she wasn't sure she should be praying for things for vegetables. Thank you for, and then she'd go around to each person around the table. And then she'd go around each stuffed animal that she had set around. <laughs> and it just went on and on and on. And oftentimes I'm getting hungry looking at this incredible meal and I just cut her off with an amen. And I'm thinking like, that's okay. She's four. She doesn't know what she's doing. She doesn't know what she's saying. We don't really know what we're doing or what we're saying. Most of us, if we're honest, and that's myself included, we have no clue how to pray. Jesus' disciples understood this. They hung out with Jesus for a while. They watched him pray. They listened to him pray and then kind of compared it to their own prayer life. And they're like, Lord, teach us how to pray. The Apostle Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, well into his relationship with, with Jesus as a mature follower of Jesus in Romans said, Oh, we don't know what we ought to pray for. We don't. So Paul and the disciples, they're agreeing with my statement that we don't have any clue how to pray, most of us. Uh, we have this, this prayer insecurity. Uh, we, we aren't sure the right words. Even when we say them, we're not confident in them many times, especially when we're around other people. Myself, I'm praying. Half the time, I'm falling asleep. <laughs> so we carry this prayer insecurity with us. Here's the beauty. Our Lord Jesus understands this. There's no judgment there. There's no condemnation. There's compassion, and there's understanding. So Jesus, in his response to the disciples, and they're like, Lord, teach us how to pray. He's like, all right, I'll teach you how to pray. And he says, this then is how you should pray. So we have a prayer in our scriptures from Jesus that tells us exactly how we ought to pray. And it is called the Lord's Prayer. 
We're starting the year with a series on the Lord's Prayer. It's five weeks called the Lord's Prayer, learning how to pray. Uh, throughout this series, you're going to be hearing the Lord's Prayer every single Sunday. And many of you grew up in traditions, some of you maybe, that you recited the Lord's Prayer, you memorized as a child. Some of you have never heard the Lord's Prayer. This is your first time ever hearing it, or maybe you've heard it, but you've never really thought about what the words mean. Um, I'm sure there's many of us at, at a wide spectrum in our church. My encouragement to all of us, whether it's a refresher or something new, is to take the opportunity of the next five weeks to memorize the Lord's Prayer. We'll be using the, the Matthew 6 version. I'll talk more about that. It's really short. It's not difficult at all to memorize. And hopefully, like Psalm 23 a few months ago, we can bury this prayer in our hearts. Um, the Lord's Prayer is something I pray often in the course of my prayer life, even though I still feel like I don't know how to pray. So uh, today, uh, Martin will be uh, doing the Lord's Prayer for us. So Martin, take it away. Matthew 6, 9 through 13 tells us, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. My theologian friend, uh, Nijay Gupta, uh, he's, he's spoken at New Hope, and um, I, I interviewed him. We'll be interviewing him again at the end of this series. He wrote a commentary on the Lord's Prayer with another theologian who wrote a commentary on the Lord's Prayer named Wesley Hill, so you can look forward to that. Nijay says this in his commentary, It is widely acknowledged that these five verses happen to be the most well-known, most memorized, and most recited portion of Scripture since the inception of Christianity. That's bold. I think he's probably accurate. We know many of Jesus' words. We talk about many of Jesus' words. They're woven into the fabric of our society, but no words are more discussed or more talked about than the ones that you just heard. So let's talk about the Lord's Prayer. Let's set context for where this prayer uh, came from. First of all, there's three forms of the Lord's Prayer, not just one. One you just heard, it's from Matthew chapter six, embedded in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. There's another version, in Luke 11, uh, they're close, they're parallel uh, in many ways, but they're also different. Uh, read the Luke 11 version sometime and you'll see what I mean. This isn't to cause alarm. Uh, these prayers grew up through oral tradition, so Jesus' followers heard them, and that's how most of the scriptures came to be. For decades, these stories were passed on, and these quotations were passed on, and finally they were written down in the Gospels. So this just tells us that two forms of this oral tradition grew up alongside one another, and it's totally okay. Uh, a third version is in a document called the, the Didache. The Didache is it's a super cool document. It's late first century, early second century, and it was basically a worship manual for the very earliest followers of Jesus. Uh, read it sometime. I think you can find it online. You can see how they prayed and when they prayed and how they worshiped and how they conducted themselves. And in the Didache is a, is a version of the Lord's Prayer, largely from Matthew 6. And we think that the earliest followers of Jesus prayed like they did, uh, for, for those who had a Jewish background, at 9, 12, and 6 each day. And at the heart of their prayer times was the Lord's Prayer. Most scholars believe the Lord's Prayer came and emerged from Jesus's own prayer life. Jesus was a Jewish man. He was a pious Jewish man. He, he followed the ways of, of, of Judaism faithfully. 
And Jews prayed three times a day in the synagogue. So it's, it's very likely, highly likely, Jesus did as well, along with praying over meals. Jesus' prayers, like most Jewish uh, people of his time, came from three primary sources. One were the Psalms. We, we have those. Those are Jesus' prayer book, essentially. One was a prayer called the 18 Benedictions that's still prayed today uh, by Jewish folks. And then uh, the third was uh, the Kaddish. And that's a, a very unique prayer that, that was popular in the time of Jesus as well. And if you read through bits of the Psalms and, and the Kaddish and the 18 benedictions, you can see where Jesus formed the Lord's Prayer. So it's coming from his own prayer life, which I think is incredibly beautiful. Jesus prayed this original prayer in Aramaic. He spoke Aramaic, and, uh, and then that was translated into Greek and written down. As you'll see, and you can read through, uh, scholars think that, that there's, they, they say there's either six or seven petitions, things that Jesus is, is telling us to ask for. Depends on whether you divide verse 13 into two petitions. Uh, a big question as we approach the Lord's Prayer that the followers of Jesus wrestle with is, should we just pray the Lord's Prayer or should we pray like the Lord's Prayer? And some traditions say, well, just pray the Lord's Prayer. That's what Jesus said, pray this. We should just pray this and take take it literally. And so uh, you may have been brought up in a tradition like that where it was said in gatherings and as you as you prayed in your private life, you just to pray the Lord's Prayer. And then not much else was prayed. And then we have traditions that kind of reject any form of written prayers, even written prayers from Jesus because uh, they're too constraining and so they don't really pray the Lord's Prayer at all and, and, and maybe look to it for guidance once in a while. I think both are true. I think that there's great beauty in praying the Lord's Prayer as is. I want to encourage you to do that. I think it's great to pray it in corporate worship settings. They're the words of Jesus. He says, pray like this. And so what could be wrong with praying that, especially when, at least speaking for myself, sometimes I don't know the right words. I don't know what to pray. But I don't think it has to be constrained uh, to just those words at all. I think the Lord's Prayer essentially is a model of praying. And so that's what we're going to follow throughout the series. We're going to kind of really break it down and look at specific words and specific praises phrases and see those as seeds in the ground or or catalyst for our own prayer life. It's a model. It, it's a guide. Um, it serves as guardrails, I think. It, it helps protect us when our prayers get outside of the will of God. Um, but it also gives us great ideas and sparks of imagination uh, of how to pray. So I think both is true. So the Lord's Prayer in some traditions, and you may have been raised in one of these, is called simply the Our Father. And that comes from the very first two words of the prayer. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time today really just looking at those two words. In the Greek and in the Latin and other languages, actually the first word of the prayer is Father. So let's start with the word Father. It is a metaphor for God. We see this in the Old Testament. Uh, Israel was called, referred to as God's son. Moses said that as he stood before Pharaoh to kind of let God's son go is how he referred to it. But referring to God or Yahweh as Father in the Old Testament is there, but it's not frequent, maybe 15 times. We go to the New Testament and we see Jesus and the different words and the names and the metaphors Jesus uses for, for God. And suddenly, Father is the predominant one. Jesus uses this metaphor of God as Father over 170 times. And to use it, most of the time, he's using this Aramaic word. Again, Jesus spoke Aramaic, and then the Aramaic teaching was carried over into the Greek language. A lot of it got translated right into Greek, but the, this Aramaic phrase, 
Abba, you may have heard that term before, is carried over into the Greek. It wasn't translated in anything else. That's rare, and I think it shows us how important this concept and this word was, Abba, to Jesus in the earliest followers of Jesus. This is a very, this word Abba, it's a very uh, tender, affectionate word. It has a lot of intimacy. So all of us, every single human has a biological father, but not everyone has an Abba. It's almost impossible when we read uh, other writings from this period to find any use, especially in Judaism, of calling God Abba. So when Jesus started to do it, it was really unconventional. And then when his followers carried it on, it was really unconventional. It makes the Lord's Prayer really a, a tender prayer uh, from a child to, to a daddy. Uh, this, this metaphor, as with all metaphors, it has strengths and weaknesses. Let's talk a little bit about the strengths of the metaphors God as Father or Abba. As we say often at New Hope, the Bible wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. So we have to always understand the original context, understand what it means to us. In the first century Greco-Roman world, uh, everything was oriented around households. They had very specific household codes, kind of who did what, who was in charge of what. Households back then were multiple generations living under the same roof, and that included uh, people that they would hire for work, and it included slaves. So you would have sometimes households, maybe 40, 50 people was a household. Imagine that if you think your home is stressful. 40, 50 people, it could be smaller as well, but much larger than what we would think of as a home. And over all of these households in the ancient world uh, was a person called the potafamilias. Uh, pata is, uh, is the, the Greek word for father. Potafamilias means the, the father of the family, literally. And this potafamilias, this father of the family, was the biological head, the legal head, the financial head of the family. Literally, the potafamilias held the life of his family in his hands. His job was to help everyone stay alive and to flourish. And the potafamilias was usually the oldest living male in the household. Now, uh, women played important roles in, in the ancient Near East and in Greco-Roman households. They were a lot of times the, the engine of these homes, but they didn't have any legal or financial authority in the homes. And now, especially ladies or all of us, we may not like that, but that's the reality of what it was. And we have to understand the reality of what it was to understand the power of the metaphor that Jesus is using. Jesus is essentially saying that God, Yahweh, is his pot of familiars. And more than that, his relationship with the potafamilias, God, is not distant. But this potafamilias, he has an Abba relationship with this father. So it becomes this powerful metaphor if we understand it within the first century context. But as with all metaphors, uh, they have limitations. And this one father uh, has several limitations. Uh, let's talk through those. One limitation is when people will use this analogy of God as Father, and specifically in the Lord's Prayer, um, to uh, make a defense for, for patriarchy. Patriarchy is a social system where men wield the primary power and privilege. It's what's ruled most of the known world and can be argued uh, still today. And so when people say, well, God is Father, then, then patriarchy is what God wants. And it's, it, when we use the Lord's Prayer in that way and we use this metaphor in that way, it, it's simply wrong. We should not do that. And that, that's one limitation to the prayer. Two is when we use this as is, is a defense to advocate that God is male. 
And I think if we think about this for more than like two seconds, we realize it's ludicrous. We know that God does not have gender. God is not man or female. This is a metaphor. It's not literal. It's it's a metaphor. And throughout scripture, we see metaphors uh, of God as a, as a man, male, and we see metaphors of God as female and a mother. Both exist. Both are powerful to describe this spirit that does not have gender. So please, let's not use this as, as advocacy that God is male. That would be inaccurate. The final limitation of, of the metaphors God as father is, is the one that's probably the most pronounced. Some of you listening today to me uh, just had terrible fathers. And when you start a prayer, our father, immediately the heart barriers go up. Because immediately you think of your father and you think of the one who left your mother or just kind of left you or was distant or in the worst case scenario was abusive. And you really can't get past the first two words of the Lord's Prayer. And maybe that's been your experience. And first, I want to just say I'm, how sorry I am. I, I grieve with you. That's not the way it should be. Uh, that's not the way God wants it to be. And it's a journey for you. And I just want to acknowledge the, the struggle by starting the prayer that way. But I guess what I want to say uh, for all of us, even if we had good fathers, all of our fathers, myself included, my girls would say this, we're all broken and sinful. And we're, not, we're not really the true fathers we should be, even the best of dads. And I would say, instead of using our own relationships with our fathers as a lens to look at God, reverse it. And we want to look at God as the pot of familiars, the Abba Father, the Father of fathers that we are meant to have, and begin to allow that to transform what our dads hopefully can become and hopefully in best case scenarios are uh, becoming. So let's, let's let the, the metaphor of father, let's not try to do too much with it. Let's let it be what it was meant to be. And Jesus is essentially saying when we pray, we should acknowledge that God is this, this being that is the, the pot of familiars, the one that holds our life in his hands, that is, is solely responsible for keeping us alive and flourishing. And this God is up close and intimate and tender and personal, our daddy. That's the, the heart of the metaphor. So let's let it be that if we're, if we're able to do so. Uh, Wesley Hill, who I referred to earlier, uh, wrote a commentary in the Lord's Prayer, and we'll be interviewing Wes and Nije again at the end of the series. Wes says it really well. He says, any picture of God as Father that leads us to think in terms of domination and cruelty rather than humble service and unending love is not a true understanding of God, of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. So there's the first word, Father, and it's a powerful word, but Jesus does not start the prayer by saying, my Father. He starts the prayer by saying, our Father. And in these two incredible words is really the heart of the gospel, that because of who Jesus is and putting on flesh and coming here and his work on the cross and his resurrection, Jesus is opening up to all of us as a free gift, the opportunity to be children of God, the opportunity to be part of the family of God so that Jesus's father can be my father and can be your father. Uh, John 1, 11 and 12 bears this out. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, here it is, children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. This means that Jesus is now our eldest brother. 
And the scriptures bear this incredible reality out as well. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of, here it is, the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call me and you brothers and sisters. Uh, we're, we're told throughout the scriptures, Paul in particular uh, uses this phrase brothers and sisters a ton of times when he's talking to the churches. I think he's doing it very intentionally to remind them they have the same dad, to remind them they have the same father that Jesus talked about. And we we're blind to this. We, we read the Lord's Prayer. I've read the Lord's Prayer. I've recited I can't even remember how many times. I've never hardly at all thought of the word, our Father. We, we live in a world of, of rugged individualism where individualism is put up at the top of the thing that we aspire towards. And there's some positive things about individualism, but there's some incredibly detrimental things about individualism as well. The way of Jesus is the way of the plural, not the singular. Think about it that way. I struggle with this likely more than any of you do or more than most of you do. I'm an only child. Some of you know that. When you tell people you're an only child, they kind of literally step back from you and they kind of look you up and down like you're suddenly some kind of exotic zoo animal. Look, there's, there's strengths and weaknesses of being an only child, but certainly one of the weaknesses of being an only child is we're prone to individualism. That's absolutely true in me. My whole entire life, it's easier to go it alone. It's easier to do something by myself. It's easier to live in the singular than in the plural. And I have worked really, really hard. I'm a work in progress. I'm still working to move to doing life in the plural because that is clearly the way of Jesus. The scriptures are filled with the plural. Do this sometimes. When you're reading scripture, try to find the singular. It's really difficult. Uh, and here's an example of even when it's mostly plural, we read it as singular. Uh, whenever we translate from one language to another, there, there's difficulties. And the English language is actually pretty pretty simple and pretty limited in scope. Um, the Greek language is, is much more nuanced. Uh, so there, there's, we, use, we use the word you to describe one person and a group of people. But in the Greek language, there was different words for this. Now, in English, our, our friends down south have tried to bridge this gap with the word y'all. <laughs> so, but it never made it uh, into, into the translator's dictionary to use the word y'all in, in, a, in the English translation. So that they just stay with you, and it's very limited. So when you're reading like through through one of the epistles, one of Paul's letters to the churches, he's writing to churches. He's writing to a collection of people. He's not writing to a person but when we see the word you, a command, our minds and our hearts go right to the singular. And we're blinded to the fact that he's talking to a collection of people. It's just an example. Look, think through the Lord's Prayer again. Think back to what Martin just read. Our Father, give us our daily bread. Uh, deliver uh, us from evil. Uh, lead us out of temptation. Uh, forgive us our debts. It's us, 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 us. We can't live or pray or even read the Lord's Prayer in the singular. It's, it's meant to be read and prayed and lived in the plural. So here's what I want you to do as, you, as, as you're working on memorizing this, and I'm, I'm going to give you a challenge later to, to, to pray it regularly. As you're doing this, 
uh, you'll, you you may likely, especially right now during a pandemic, be, be doing it alone. Maybe you'd be with family or friends, but likely you'll be alone. When you're alone, if, if you've done this before, you'll still pray our father, which is think about that. That's kind of odd. You don't usually say my father, you say our father. What an incredible phrase. Because the minute you say, and even when you're alone, our father, you're recognizing the reality that you're praying with the entire church. When you say our father, let that be a catalyst uh, to envision yourself praying with all your brothers and sisters at New Hope. And now with our new friends about Scott joining the new New Hope, there's even more of us. We're praying when we, even more alone, we say our Father, we're praying all of us together. Picture that scene, that mighty scene. When we pray our Father, we're not only praying with brothers and sisters from New Hope, but brothers and sisters all over the greater Portland area. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of churches and faithful followers of Jesus. We're praying with all of them. When we pray our Father, we're praying with all the followers of Jesus all over our state. When we pray our Father, we're praying with the brothers and sisters all over our nation. Yes, our divided nation. It feels like many different nations at times, but no, when we pray our Father, we realize we have way more in common than we have that divides us. It's our Father. We have the same dad that's in charge. When we pray our Father, even when we're alone, we're praying with our brothers and sisters all over the world. As Revelation said, people of every color, of every background, of every language will be there at the wedding of the, the wedding lamb, the, the wedding feast of the lamb. Picture that. Allow these two words to be our portal into the experience that we're not praying in the singular, we're praying in the plural. And when we pray our Father, maybe most importantly, we realize we're also praying with our oldest brother, Jesus, who sits at the right hand of the Father, advocating for me, advocating for you, even though we have no clue how to pray. We, we I think most of us, if we're honest, I'll be honest with you, this is true for me, pray out of, our, our, out of insecurity. We're not sure uh, how to pray. We're not sure the right words to pray. And I get, I get paid to pray, and I still feel that way. We fall asleep when we pray, even when we, we're not sure that God's listening. If he is listening, are we worthy? Have we behaved enough for him to listen to us? Will he possibly, we have all these things. We, we tend to pray with this kind of woe is me, uh, eyes cast down, illegitimate child, kind of like the panhandler that won't make eye contact that just is approaching and, and hoping to get a dime, but knowing that no one's going to give a dime. That's, how, that's our posture when we pray. With these two words, the first two words of this magnificent prayer that's to be our model for praying, our Father, Jesus puts all that foolishness to rest. Jesus says, you're not illegitimate. You, you're, you've got the birthright. You've got my birthright. I'm your eldest brother. I've provided a way. You're part of the family of God. You pray as children of God. You pray as children of the King. We should be praying with chutzpah because of this reality. Paul reminds the followers of Jesus in Rome, they weren't sure how to pray. They struggled. They had insecurity just like us. Listen to Paul's words. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry. Here's our word. Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. The late Brennan Manning is one of my favorite authors. His books really shaped my view of God and led me out of some really broken ways of seeing God. 
And Brenda said that being Abba's child is our core identity. It, it, we, have, we find our identity all kind of foolish things. I know I do. Being Abba's child is the top. It's the pinnacle. It's, it's the foundation of everything. It is our primary identity. And we, when we pray, we pray as Abba's children. That's why the writer of Hebrews can say to all followers of Jesus that when we pray, we can come boldly before the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need. Boldly before the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need. When we pray, we pray uh, as God's children. We pray as children of the King. And thus, as we're praying, we expect our daddy, our father, our potafamilius, who is the maker of heaven and earth, He's going to hear us and his heart's going to be tender towards us and that he wants to give us good gifts. And so many of us don't think that when we pray. And that's just the truth of scripture. Our daughter Jubilee, who's 10 now this last Christmas, I, I lost track of how many Christmas wish lists she had. They just kept on changing like over butts and, you know, God bless her. And she was all excited for the holidays and she had different things. And and there were a lot of good ideas. And sometimes it's her parents that want to give her good gifts. We would make some like suggestions, like, you know, she wanted a, a hamster for a long time. And we're like, hey, we got two crazy dogs and one of them's a mouser. I don't know that a hamster's a great idea, honey. And so we ended with a goldfish. And uh, she talked about, you know, just wanting a huge stuffed animal from Santa. So that's what she asked for Santa. And and so, yeah, we went through all the lists and finally she kind of she finalized them. And as Corey and I are thinking over the list and what we want to give her, our hearts are delighted. Well, as her parents, we want to give her good gifts. What parent doesn't? And there's a picture that's going to come up of, of what she got from Santa. That guy is locked in. He knows exactly what, what she wanted. And look at that face. Look at that smile. Like what parent doesn't just beam when they see their kid like that? That's, that's what God's heart is towards me, towards you when we pray. He's our father. He's our daddy that wants to give us good gifts. Jesus knew we'd struggle with this. He understands our broken hearts. And that's why right after giving the Lord's Prayer, in the next chapter in Matthew 7, Jesus says this, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? That'd be a terrible parent. If you then, though you were evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So when we pray, we need to pray with these two words, transform our mindset. They transform the posture in which we pray. We don't have to be, woe is me, eyes to the ground, coming in shame, coming in our brokenness. We come with chutzpah. We come with confidence that we pray as children of God. We pray as children of the King. We pray in great expectation that our potter familiar, the maker of heaven and earth, wants to give us good gifts and will give us good gifts. Uh, Wesley, again, says it so well. He says, God doesn't require a flawless recitation of certain phrases, as if he were poised to fly into a rage in the absence of the right formula or performance. No, Jesus says, God, our Father, and he is already disposed favorably towards us. And then he quotes Isaiah, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. This is God's heart towards us. Wesley goes on, and this is a great challenge. Go find a quiet place where you can relax, Jesus seems to say. Unclench your fist. Oh, breathe deeply. Let your heart rate decrease. Know that you're already bathed in the Father's love and ask simply for what you need. In the assurance that the one to whom you're speaking is already 
cupping his ear in your direction. That's what prayer should be. Isn't that great? We, we chose the series, The Lord's Prayer, because one thing that I needed to refresh, I need to know how to pray. I don't have any clue how to pray most days. But we also, as we enter this new year and we're a new church and a new, new property and facility for many of us, we wanted the foundation of all we do to be prayer. I'll be honest, I guess as a leader, I'm supposed to know everything we're supposed to do. I don't really know much, <laughs> but I know we need to pray. I don't understand prayer fully. I don't understand how it works, but I know it changes things. It changes us as we pray, and it changes the Father's heart. It changes the world. We need to pray. We want to be a church. Whatever we become, whatever New Hope becomes, we want to be a church that's known as a praying church. We want to be a house of prayer. So uh, a couple challenges. One, you, you got the announcement uh, earlier about the prayer walk. Take these opportunities. Help us to become a praying church. What an awesome way to safely just bless the property and the church and the neighborhood and our new church as we go forward to ask God's protection and his blessing upon us. We so desperately need that. So mark your calendars for January 10th. Make that a priority. Join us. And then here, here's how I want us to use the Lord's Prayer. I want us to pray it every day. Maybe some of you already do this, um, but memorize it and pray it every day. I was going to give us all a specific time, but you know, we all have different lives and schedules. Pick a time that works for you, a time that you can be faithful. Maybe it's when you get up in the morning. Maybe it frames your day. Me, a lot of times I pray it at night. It frames kind of the past day. And as I go to sleep, it gets me ready for the day to come. Whatever works for you. And start by just praying it. And as you learn in the series what the phrases mean and what the words mean, then they can be seeds in our heart. They can be catalysts for how we can pray in more extravagant ways to align ourselves with our Father's heart force. And as we pray these first two words, you'll start with the words, our Father. And when you pray that, let them be a reminder that we are not alone. We are praying with God's church. We are praying as God's children. We're praying as children of the King. Let me pray for us. God, thank you uh, for, for this prayer that you looked at our hearts, you know our brokenness, you know that we struggle to know how to pray. Your disciples did, Paul did, everybody does. And you're like, okay, <laughs> here's, how, here's how you need to pray. And what a gift this prayer is, God. And I can't wait for our community. I can't wait for myself and my family as we unpack this prayer, as we let it work into our community and change us and transform us into being the church you want us to be. Uh, thanks for your great love for us. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.